My wife gave me a checklist as I come up here to make sure my zipper is up and that I don't forget to let the kids go to children's church. So with that, I've checked both boxes, and we can jump into our, our sermon here this morning. Pastor Stephen and the elders have been filling some of the roles Pastor Jason's had the last couple of weeks as he's away, and i got to say that Pastor Stephen set the bar very high last week and again today wearing a tie and also in preaching out of John chapter 6, which is one of the weightiest, deepest chapters, I think, in the New Testament, and he did a good job of that. And so I'm here today to lower the bar a little bit, and uh, there's no tie, and uh, I'm taking a scripture that that is a, a, a different path than, than he had last week. I couldn't wear a tie because I only have funeral ties and a tie that has pool balls on it, and neither are going to work for that today. So with that, let's open in prayer, and uh, then we'll look at our scripture. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be together this morning and, and uh, just to open your word and, and look on it, think on it, and uh, take what you have for us and use it in our lives this morning. I pray especially your Holy Spirit would be here. Give me the help I need to, to do what we have to do and, and give all of us your spirit that, that guides and works in our lives. Father, just, just be with us these next minutes, and I ask this thing, these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's once a time in my life that I thought I might write a book, and I was going to base it on experiences that I've had as a farmer and as a basketball coach and as a cattle rancher. And it was to be a book about spiritual things and how I saw God working in nature and in sports, but mostly how he was working through me in those experiences. And it seemed like most of those spiritual experiences comes after we work cows, for whatever reason. And somehow the, the best and the worst can come out of me in me in those situations. I've learned since that I'm, not too, that I'm too undisciplined to be a writer, and I've learned, I've also since I never learned how to type, that uh, writing a book is probably out of the question. But you probably didn't know it, but a year ago, when I had the last opportunity to, uh, to stand here and deliver a sermon, I gave you one of the chapters out of that book last year in a sermon entitled, Straighters of the Lost Ark. Today I'm going to share another chapter in that sermon in my head, that book in my head, and it's entitled, Oh No Mo." Now, I'm not a theologian or a preacher with any training, but I do know that preaching should be centered around God's word, and the scripture itself should do the talking. The preaching should not focus on an illustration with a cool cow story or your experience. And that's my priority and goal for the passage of scripture that I'm going to look at today. I started thinking about this passage several months ago when our Bible study group that meets at Daryl's on Tuesdays was who's we're working our way through Genesis and uh, at first glance when we read this chapter I, I didn't like it and I I passed over it rather quickly but as as uh, in fact when you read it it's it's one of those kind of fits into the title this morning where you just say oh no and uh, in fact in fact if you could give a, a movie rating to this passage it would have an R rating probably but as our Bible study always does, the guys, as we start, start reading on something and talking about it, um, the, the things in the, 
just changed and, and things began to begin to realize there's a lot more going on here than an old retired carpenter who's had too much to drink. When I applied a different R rating, R for Reformed Theology, to Genesis 9, I went from wanting to quickly pass it by, like we tend to do with puzzling or other hard-to-read Old Testament passages, to a willingness to want to talk about hard things in a difficult passage. I told one of you a few weeks ago that I'm not a preacher, and I see myself more as a Bible student who's going to share his term paper with you this morning. So before we read Genesis 9, 18 through 28 together, I need to share all of my sources with you like you would in any term paper. And my sources start with that Bible study group, all the guys that meet in that group, and then these theologians and deep thinkers, R.C. Sproul, Stephen Lawson, Glenn Bitts, and Alan Stewart. They all fit together nicely. So let's turn to Genesis 9. I'm going to add a couple of verses then then we uh, may have printed in your bulletin, but we're going to start in verse 18, Genesis 9, 18 through 28. And in your study, or in your pew Bible, that's all the way back at the beginning, page 6, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All of the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. I heard R.C. Sproul once say that the Bible is filled with drama, yet the characters were people just like us. They were just normal, ordinary people that were called to do extraordinary things. Elijah was probably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He was involved in many incredible miracles and never experienced death as God took him to heaven. He met with Jesus at the transfiguration, and yet James says in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like us. When we start to realize the fact that all the Bible figures from the Old Testament through the New Testament were just men and women like us, men and women with the same emotions that experience the same feelings that we do, it can change how you read the Bible, and it helps us understand more clearly the lessons and the theology we learn as we read it. Lately, I've become more interested in Old Testament characters than ever before. Often we think of these Old Testament figures more like characters at storybook land than we do as past living, breathing people. And that's somewhat understandably so. They are involved in miraculous events such as Jonah got swallowed by a fish and spit back out. Before the flood, many lived, just like we mentioned Noah, all these years. They lived for hundreds of years 
almost like an immortal character in Greek or Roman mythology. Samson had incredible strength to kill a lion and a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. As a boy, David killed the giant Goliath with a slingshot. And then our man today, Noah, built an ark the size of an ocean liner and filled it with animals to survive a flood. There's many other incredible things too numerous to mention. They truly were, as R.C. Sproul says, called to do extraordinary things in the superpower nature of God. But they were just people like us with a nature like ours. As we look at Noah and his sons in, his, in this passage, I want you to keep that in mind, that these are people just like us. Noah had an incredible resume before this last mention of him in the Bible. In Genesis 5, it says of his father Lamech, quote, he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toils of our hands. Lamech somehow knew that his son Noah was going to be some type of savior. Maybe he will be the one to break the curse. Not only the curse of the earth that causes all our pain and grief, but maybe he's the one to break the curse and shame of sin. Chapter 6 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that Noah walked with God Noah was obedient to God. In Genesis 6.22, it says in response to God's orders, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God establishes a covenant with Noah, and Scripture plainly says that God spoke to Noah. The first two-thirds of Noah's life is an incredible display of righteous living and obedience to God. It's absolutely incredible when you consider that the sin around him is so great. Genesis 6.5 says that every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man was evil all the time. God was sorry to have made them. Imagine being blameless in a generation of people who can only think thoughts built around evil and sin. Noah, the blameless man, stepped out of the ark onto the earth that had just been washed and purged of the sin of man. Could Noah be be the new Adam that's going to take up farming and tend the garden like the first Adam? Maybe lead the world to be blameless in God's sight? Well, we have good theology here today at Richland. We know that Noah took more than just two of every animal into the ark. We know he took something else. We know that after Adam's sin, everyone is born into sin. The innocence is gone. Romans plainly says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A man with a sin nature walked into the ark and also walked out of the ark. Noah may have been called blameless, but he wasn't called sinless. The blamelessness was a result of his faith, faith in a future redeemer that all old characters look to. The Bible does this for us all the time. It never holds back and hides the sins of the heroes of faith. Noah... Abraham, David, Peter, Paul, everyone else has their sin laid out clearly for all to see in Scripture. Some's grosser than others, but all sinners living the role that God would have them play in his redemptive story. Noah is a picture of the Savior to come, but he's not going to be capable of breaking the curse of sin. Only the Son of God, Jesus, 
who was not born with a sin nature, can and did break that curse and open the way for Noah and all who believe in Christ to be called blameless before God. Also love that the Bible says this morning that Noah became a man of the soil. Some translations will even put the word farmer in there. Noah became a farmer. Farming is the foundation of society. Just like Adam before him tended the soil, this new Adam post-flood is going to tend the soil. As if the life of carpentry and boat building might have been stressful, Noah jumps into the most stressful or one of the most stressful occupations known to man. All of us in every occupation on the earth feel the curse of sin. But those of us in farming and ranching feel it as its vivid description when God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Agriculture is a fight from start to finish, and it's most definitely not bad all the time, but it's never easy. Weeds, weather, work, wind, 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 and more wind will weaken, wash out, and warp us to the end. And becoming a man of the soil is going to show us Noah's sin. So what is Noah's sin? I'm going to potentially, I told you I was diving into a hard passage, but I'm going to open up a potentially slippery slope here that I don't want to become a stumbling block. But Noah's sin is not that he drank wine or alcohol. I'm not advocating or encouraging drinking or in any way trying to justify potential bad behavior, but the Bible has many passages concerning drink, and there are none that say thou shalt not drink unless called to abstain like John the Baptist or Samson or other Nazarite vow takers. In fact, Jesus made wine in John 2, and it was the best quality wine ever made. Wine was drunk to celebrate festive occasions in the Bible, such as at weddings. Jesus served wine at the Last Supper, and Jesus even drank bitter, sour wine while on the cross. The Old Testament has passages mentioning drink offerings of wine, such as in Leviticus 23.13. Noah's sin wasn't that he drank alcohol. Noah's sin is that he drank too much and became drunk. The result and effect of Noah's drunkenness was the same then, as it is to the intoxicated person today. Drunkenness caused poor decision-making and leads to other potential bad things. And in Noah's case, he ends up naked, exposing and humiliating himself. The Bible is distinctly clear about drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.10, drunkards won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And in 1 Timothy and Titus, it says to not be addicted to too much wine and not be a drunkard as qualifications for church leadership. This can be a difficult issue, one that needs some thinking through, especially as we raise our children. We dare not give abstinence of alcohol a platform to be a requirement of salvation. But we also need to teach how easily a man who walked with God and found favor in his sight 
was blameless in a sinful generation could so easily end up drunk and not in control of himself. Let me repeat that statement. We dare not give abstinence of alcohol a platform to be a requirement of salvation, but we also need to cautiously teach how easily a man who walked with God found favor in his sight was blameless in a sinful generation could so easily end up drunk and not in control of himself. Another point to be made in this passage about Noah is that as we age, we want to finish well. The majority of Noah's life was spent in obedience and service to God. The last mention of Noah is this gross story. This should teach us to never quit battling sin. It's going to be a battle to the end. We want to finish well and let your last chapter not be one of sin. Well, we've made it through the first three verses. Got a half hour of time left to go. My wife told me earlier that we'd all rather be eating at Wiley than listening to me. So hopefully we can speed up here and I'll, I'll be done before that half hour. I think she said something more like the quicker you're done, the quicker we eat. Not, not to listen to me. The next point I want to make, we get into some good stuff, is to be extracted is our children are influenced by what we do and they can suffer the consequences of our sin. Because of Noah's sin, his son Ham sees him naked, and he then sins in dishonoring his father. The Bible doesn't say exactly what that is, but he tries to get his brothers to join him in it. Ham tried to lure his brothers into dishonoring and disrespecting their father in the midst of his sin. Nakedness throughout the Bible is a symbol of weakness and sin. I'll say that again. Nakedness throughout the Bible is a symbol of weakness and sin. And Ham saw and wanted to leave exposed his father's sin. The Old Testament has many verses about honoring your parents. Exodus 20, verse 12, chapter 21, 15, and 17. And then later in Leviticus, there are many, many verses. And some of it make it a capital crime even to to dishonor your parents or curse at your parents. Proverbs 6 also mentions that the Lord hates someone who tries to sow discord among his brothers. All we do know is that when Noah woke up, he somehow knew what Ham had done, and because of it, he then curses the next generations because of the sin of their father. Sin in our lives can not only affect us, but it can carry into the next generations. The Old Testament is full of kings who walked in the sinful ways of their fathers, children who had to walk in the wilderness because of the sins of their fathers, children who were exiled because of the previous generation's sin. But if we can say that children are influenced by their parents' sinful behavior and can suffer the consequences into the next generations, I think we can also say that children and grandchildren can be influenced by Christ. Christ-like behavior and attempting to flee sin and its influences. Let me give you a personal example of that. My grandma, Lorraine Palmer, grew up in Cologne, Minnesota. Her mother was a believer and her dad was an alcoholic. I'm going to quote for you a few lines that Grandma Lorraine wrote in her 70th wedding for, for a document in her 70th wedding anniversary that was back in 1989. My grandma said, I admire my mother 
1917, she decided that Cologne wasn't the right place to live. She wasn't going to raise her kids in a churchless town that had five saloons. Her dad drank, and he drank too much. So she decided they were going to leave, with or without her husband. She had a chance to go to Richland Township, south of Minas, South Dakota, to a farm that had work. So she put her household belongings and horses on a train to Mina. A year later, Dad came. The Lord sure led her, led her dad as well. And we are still thankful to this day that she had the courage to come here. End quote. My grandparents who met and married here because of great-grandmas moving lived Christ-like lives and passed that heritage on to the next generation. Fleeing sin can also bring benefit to future generations. The next important part of this passage is the two faithful sons, Shem and Japheth. They give us an Old Testament picture of the good news of the gospel. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they didn't see their father's nakedness. I said earlier that nakedness is a symbol of sin and shame. Nakedness and being clothed is taken very seriously in the Bible. In Genesis 3, when God walked in the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God. And when asked where they were, Adam said they hid because they were afraid and naked. God then pronounced the consequences of that sin, but he also pronounced a future savior, promised a future savior from the offspring of Eve. But lastly, God didn't leave them naked and afraid. The first redemptive act of the gospel occurs in Genesis 3.21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Have you ever thought what those garments might have looked like? I know I have. I'm not a fashion king, but I do know that if God makes something, and if God made them, they had to be awesome. If Jesus made wine that was the best there is, when God the Father makes garments, they are the best there is. Made to fit, made to last. They probably weren't made of, well, we know they weren't made of cotton, chiffon, denim, lace, silk, satin, velvet, polyester, or nylon. I imagine, and this is just me thinking out loud, but I picture the very first death on earth was to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. And and the animal, I think, is, I think it was a lamb. The image of the sacrificial lamb is woven all through the Bible. That could could be wrong there. It doesn't matter what the animal was, but it was an animal. And that animal gave its life to clothe Adam and Eve and cover their shame. Adam's shame was covered by a garment made by God himself. Noah's shame was covered with a garment by his two sons. Who can be a type of Christ and help us see another picture of the Savior to come? Shem and Japheth couldn't leave their father uncovered and wouldn't participate in their brother's sin. Because of this, Noah prophesies and blesses these two sons especially Shem, whose descendants would become the nation of Israel and the lineage that would lead to Christ. 
and Japheth as well, who's going to dwell in Shem's tents and be the ancestors of the Gentiles. Who are, who, who are we? We get to join in that great salvation and be in the tent of Shem someday. Adam's nakedness was symbolically covered by God's first work of redemption. Noah's shame was symbolically covered by his sons. Our sin and shame also needs to be covered by the perfection of Christ. Jesus provides a remedy for sin and shame that is perfect and will last. We cannot earn our way to heaven by good works. Isaiah 64 says, Our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. We need to be clothed in a garment of salvation that can only be transferred to us by Christ. When holy God looks on us after we trust in him, he sees Christ's perfection. The first act of redemption was God making Adam a garment to hide his shame, and the last act of redemption for Christ was saying, it is finished. He provides us with a robe of his righteousness for all who believe. Just as an animal gave its life to provide that covering for Adam and Eve, Jesus gave his life to provide a righteous garment to cover our sin. Almost all the worship songs that we've sung today so far have told us the story that how our sins are covered by the shedding of Christ's blood. And I'd invite the worship team to, to even come now, come and lead us into our closing. But before we do, I have to end with a cow story, don't I? I, I hinted at that. For years, Pastor Ron had the, the coolest illustration about how our sin is covered, and he pulled that handkerchief out and cover us, and that, that, the first time he did that for me, I mean, things, things really made sense in that. Well, I have a, a different story with a different covering that, uh, that uh, we'll use here this morning. The story I'm going to tell you today played out in several acts, but I'm going to condense it into, into one short story, and it goes like this. In the cattle business, one of the most rewarding and also one of the most frustrating jobs can be working with new baby calves, especially calves that never learn to suck a cow and need your intervention. Also, bottle feeding a twin and trying to get a cow who's lost its calf to adopt an orphan as its own can be dangerous, frustrating, and time-consuming. It's frustrating when you have to intervene, but satisfying when you're successful. A cow will recognize its own calf by smell, not by sight, not by sound. Maybe a little bit of touch and taste, but smell. And if a calf that's not its own tries to suck, they would just as soon kill it than try to mother it and make it their own. I can remember years ago, the first time I had a cow that lost its calf in a storm a couple days previous. And as the storm continued, I had a set of twins, one of which was abandoned by its mother. It was the first time on my own with my own cows that I had to deal with this situation. And the weather was bad, and my dad couldn't come to help. My dad freely gave his advice over the phone on how to get them together. He told me my options. He had heard about a new product called Onomo, or Orphan No More. You sprinkle it on the calf, and it makes the cow want to lick the calf, and pretty soon it will take it at its own. Well, I didn't have any Onomo. And I couldn't go try to get it because the weather was bad. Option number two was to spray the calf with some bathroom deodorizer and also spray it up the cow's nose. This is supposed to confuse the cow 
and make it think that everything smells like roses, especially its calf. Dad hadn't had any success with this method, but he'd heard about it. It sounded like it was worth a try because he next described method number three. I didn't like that idea. I tried option number two and it didn't work. Maybe I had the wrong scented deodorizer. That left me with option number three if I wanted this to work. I didn't like it. It wasn't easy. In fact, it was gross. Dad's option number three was to take my hunting knife, get the dead calf, that the cow's dead calf that was laying outside, and skin off its newborn hide. Next, take some string and tie the hide on like a coat as a covering over the rejected twin calf. The cow would smell its own original calf when smelling the hide covering the twin and accept it based solely on the smell provided by the covering of the dead calf. I hated skinning that calf. I couldn't make a proper fitting garment like God did for Adam, but it worked. It worked like a miracle. The cow smelled the dead calf's hide on the twin calf, accepted the orphan calf, and made it its own. It was accepted because of the death and covering provided by its own dead calf. It was an orphan no more. That dead baby calf provided the necessary requirement for the mother cow to accept the foreign calf that was not her own. We, too, are in need of something we cannot provide on our own to be accepted into the family of God as adopted children. Jesus provides what we need. His perfect righteousness imputed to us covers us, covered in his blood. When God looks on us, he sees Christ and doesn't smell the sinful, yet being sanctified person underneath. We can be grafted and adopted into the family of God by believing in Christ and letting him cover our sin. Let's pray. Dear God, your word says in Romans that everyone who believes in your son will not be put to shame. Our sin and shameful shameful nakedness can be covered by your son's righteousness. I ask, O God, that no one here today would leave or, or this week not have full assurance that they're covered by the precious blood and covering of righteousness that Christ can provide. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful that you work in us. We talked about some difficult, crazy things today. I just pray that you'd take those and, and let, this, let us chew on them, yet uh, do things in a way that you get the glory. Ask this in your son's name. Amen. Please stand as we sing, and the worship team will lead us into our benediction. sins in your body as you were hung on a tree so we might die to rebellion and live for him who set us free you were mocked and reviled 
suffering in our place trusting all to your father so enemies could know your grace we have been healed justified made alive in the life of Christ righteous blood covers every sin risen lamb heaven's light crucified and now alive in your love you've drawn us in like strange sheep we were wandering destitute and alone you sought us out like a shepherd you carried us and brought us home we have been healed justified made alive in the life of Christ righteous blood covers every sin risen lamb heaven's light crucified and now alive in your love you've drawn us in all our sin for your grace what a glorious exchange all our sin for your grace what a glorious exchange all our sin for your grace what a glorious exchange we have been healed justified made alive in the life of christ righteous blood covers every sin risen lamb heaven's light crucified and now alive in your love you've drawn us in we have been healed justified made alive in the life of christ righteous blood covers every sin risen lamb heaven's light crucified and now alive in your love you've drawn us in in your love you've drawn us in Our benediction comes from the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And may the Lord make an increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that you may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Thank you for worshiping us today. Have a good week. Thank you.